This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. You all know that I like to bring you enrichment from time to time. Conversations with people who work in fields that are adjacent to our main focus on AI-driven conversational interfaces. And I also know that a lot of you, like me, are really interested in deep learning, where we've seen spectacular progress in the last couple of years. Today I'm speaking with someone who practices deep learning at the extreme end of the scale on really thorny problems with tons of data, like climate change. My guest is Prabhat, who leads data and analytics services at the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center. That's the supercomputing lab at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Prabhat is also the author of a new article from O'Reilly called A Look at Deep Learning for Science. You can find a link to that article in the show notes that accompany this episode. Welcome, Prabhat. Good to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me. So today we'll be talking about, you know, using data and doing a little bit of deep learning at the extreme of data scale and quantity. It's a really cool end of the spectrum to think about because people often say that you you need more data, more computing in order to do really interesting AI stuff. And you all at Lawrence Berkeley have lots of data and lots of computing. Absolutely. So modern science produces data uh, across the board. You know, maybe about 10 years back, we used to have megabytes, gigabytes of data. Uh, these days, it's quite common for scientific instruments to produce terabytes of data every night. Hmm. So over the lifetime of any project, you might be looking at hundreds of terabytes of data or petabytes of data. Uh, going forward, we'll almost certainly be looking at hundreds of petabytes and maybe even exabytes of data. So in order to, to handle such large data sets, uh, we need big machines. And that's what the big supercomputing centers do, analyze uh, large collections of data uh, in a high-performance manner. Uh, but going forward, of course, we need advanced analytics techniques to do this analysis uh, on as well. Uh, so that's why we need uh, big HPC machines. So uh, set the uh, the stage here for the listeners. How does a supercomputing center at a national lab differ from, uh, you know, an ordinary data center or even a you know a high end uh, data center that a commercial company might use to do data analytics and, and deep learning? Sure. So fundamentally, we do not have commodity components. Um, mm -hmm. Our compute nodes uh, feature high-end uh, server class uh, chipsets. Uh, the memory is quite high performance as well. Uh, and most importantly, the, the individual nodes are tightly connected uh, through, say, uh, you know, the Aries interconnect that Cray might provide. So uh, if you want to run... Uh, a workload involving deep uh, deep learning, uh, you will need uh, a tightly coupled system. So if, if one node needs to communicate um, uh, its parameter updates, for example, with another node, uh, you're going to get much lower latencies and, uh, and much higher bandwidth uh, using these uh, proprietary interconnects. And uh, I mean, is, is the architecture fundamentally the same as you would find in a commercial uh, application? Or, or you mentioned Cray. Are these like... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, classical supercomputers? Uh, correct. So uh, these are classical uh, HPC architectures. Uh, the interconnect, again, is the secret sauce here. So mm -hmm. the topology that you will get in an InfiniBand-based system uh, is going to be different from uh, the topologies that we have uh, at, at big HPC uh, platforms like, like ours. So you might have a 3D torus, a 4D torus, or a Dragonfly network. And again, it's the topology that lets you share data, move data around quite efficiently. Uh, the file systems are, again, a big a big difference as well. So in, in a conventional data center architecture, uh, you might have local spinning disk. These days, sometimes you have uh, SSD memory on, on a single node. Uh, 
Uh, on the HPC side of things, we do not have uh, local disk. Uh, so you'll have memory. Sometimes you might have SSD memory on, on single nodes. But then you have high-performance file systems like GPFS or Lustre. And uh, these file systems can support, these days, you know, hundreds of gigabytes a second of I.O. bandwidth. Hmm. We have also experimented with deploying pools of SSD memory, so something called the burst buffer technology from Cray and Intel, mm-hmm. uh, at scale. So these burst buffer SSD pools can store a petabyte of data, and you can read and write data from uh, these SSD pools at the rate of uh, one to two terabytes a second. So the, the hardware seems uh, quite specialized. Mm-hmm. How, how far back do you go with the scientists who use these facilities? Do you have to start collaborating with them you know, to plan out your infrastructure the moment they begin conceptualizing an experiment and a, and a use case? To some extent, yes. Um, you know, in, in some ways, the, the science community, of course, keeps track of these architectures and adapts itself. Uh, now, I, I should note that the software stack that we deploy on these, uh, on these machines is, is relatively standard. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so you do have tools like C, C++, Fortran. Mm-hmm. For the data mm-hmm. science community, we have tools like Python, R, Spark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, uh, you know, there's a big push to get machine learning and deep learning libraries to to work well on these architectures. So again, our hope is that the science community will not have to fundamentally change what they do in order to utilize the HPC hardware platform in contrast to maybe the, uh, the data center platform. So hmm. to respond to your question on um, you know, how far back uh, the community goes and, and iterates with NERSC, uh, we do, of course, pay close attention to the current and future projected needs of our science community. So there hmm. is a an entire requirements gathering process wherein we ask the leading science users on uh, what their needs are going to be five years from now, uh, how they expect to interact with uh, with the hardware. And keeping that in mind, we uh, we formulate uh, our, our RFPs to have vendors then respond to those RFPs and propose solutions. Then, of course, we work closely with the vendors to make sure that the hardware is configured in a reasonable manner. And then most importantly, the software is configured so as to be uh, both productive and high performant. So uh, before we go further, perhaps you could just sort of uh, run us through a few of the kinds of uh, projects that that scientists are are working on on uh, NERSC's facilities. You you mentioned a few in in a terrific uh, blog post that you published on O'Reilly about a year ago about sort of the, the big data science problems. Um, mm-hmm. And, and there will be a link to that uh, blog post in the notes that accompany this episode. But wonder if you could just sort of walk us through, uh, you know, one or two of the most compelling uh, use cases. Sure. So in the data science world, um, uh, you know, some of the examples, uh, some of the leading examples uh, are, uh, you know, the Celeste project, which is my personal favorite. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in that project, what we are trying to do is to look at Telescope data from a range of uh, different projects, such as uh, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, the Palomar Transient Factory, uh, and and a few other telescopes. And what we're trying to do is to create uh, one unified catalog of all objects in the visible universe. Uh, so uh, you can formulate this problem as a large-scale inference problem. If you if you write out the graphical model for this problem, it turns out to be the largest uh, graphical model for science. Uh, and then the challenge essentially is given all this, you know, trillions of pixels, hundreds of terabytes of data, uh, can you actually solve this problem? Can you, uh, can you work out the inference at scale, mm-hmm. say running on thousands of nodes uh, and, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands, of course. Uh, 
So uh, for me, I mean, it's a beautiful problem. Um, you know, it's important to have the best catalog that you can that you can produce as a, as a scientific uh, problem. Uh, but then there's a beautiful statistical inference problem in it, and then there is a beautiful you know, computer science problem of how do you scale uh, these methods for these large data sets. Hmm. The second problem is is around uh, you know finding patterns in climate data. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a problem that I'm working on for my PhD thesis at at UC Berkeley, uh, and essentially we want to uh, raise the level of conversation uh, regarding climate change from thinking about coarse uh, annual mean quantities like uh, you know what the temperature of of the earth is going to be uh, mm -hmm. by the end of the century so that that analysis is fairly simplistic you know we talk about a 1 degree increase versus a 2 degree increase versus right. maybe a 4 degree increase but if you look at the the rich uh, data that's already in place when we run these expensive simulations uh, we can talk about extreme weather events we can talk about you know the, the statistics of cat 4 cat 5 storms we can talk about how often we expect these storms to make landfall going into, into the future and the impact that they're going to have uh, on on society as a whole so uh, so you know how do we pull out such extreme events automatically from hundreds of terabytes of data. That's an important problem that uh, that we're also looking at, and we are applying deep learning for solving that particular problem. That that sounds like it actually resembles uh, the process that a lot of commercial sort of deep learning uh, developers and thinkers are going through, where perhaps for a long time you've had a lot of data that you're only able to think about in terms of summary statistics mm -hmm. or tabulations, and now you're you're able to sort of create models that actually relate things to each other at a granular level. Absolutely. So, uh, so again, uh, instead of having a course, so if you think about the climate system, right? So it's uh, mm -hmm. there are a, a million grid points. Uh, there are thirty variables at each grid point, and then you have snapshots of the climate system every six hours. So a huge amount of data. But then, unfortunately, the kinds of analysis that we do tends to summarize all of that and reduces it to one single number. You know, the mm -hmm. average mean mm -hmm. temperature for the entire year. So absolutely. So I think uh, so. That's great. I mean, you know, it, it lets you look at an overall trend. Uh, but again, if you think about impact and impact of the climate system where you live in California or say in the in the northeast, uh, you do want to think about extremes and how extremes are going to be changing instead of maybe just a just an average uh, change in temperature. So yeah. So I think we want to raise the level of conversation from these core statistics to semantically meaningful uh, and semantically impactful uh, extreme extreme weather events. So is this a type of analysis? that scientists had dreamed about being able to conduct for, for a long time, but that they can only now uh, do because of the computing resources and the and the deep learning techniques? That's right. So I think that's a fair <clears throat> characterization. Again, it's, it's early days. I would not say that we've solved the problem completely. Uh, but I think mm -hmm. it's only in the last two years or so that we are that we've started to methodically apply uh, pattern recognition techniques for this sort of a problem. And then we quickly realized that uh, deep learning based methods had a lot of promise uh, for this particular problem. And then now we've started to apply it. I would say that we are at a stage right now where we prove to ourselves that uh, conceptually these techniques can work and they give you the right answer. Uh, so now we are starting to scale these methods out going forward. Uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, much like I think what's been found in computer vision, where object recognition problems were thought to be, uh, you know, very hard and, and perhaps mm -hmm. not solvable, you know, for the next decades. I think what we found is th that that problem can be solved and it can be solved right now. So I think we are similarly uh, finding that uh, a similar range of problems, object detection, activity recognition uh, in the scientific area uh, are also now tractable. So a moment ago, you gave us a kind of a preview of the, the scale of the data that, that uh, 
you're working with. If you think about you know snapshots of the world's entire climate uh, at 30 variables every six hours, could could you talk a little bit about how, in general, scientific uh, deep learning data differs from the sort of commercial deep learning data that people are probably a little more used to looking at? Sure. So if you just think about the attributes of of scientific data sets, the the differences arise. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in the multi-channel or the multivariate nature of the data set. Uh, so conventional images that you might acquire through a cell phone or, or some other recording technology, typically they're going to have, you know, three channels, RGB. Mm-hmm. But in the scientific context, you're looking at many channels. So if you look at the climate, if you think about the climate system, uh, you, you'll be looking at temperature, pressure, wind, humidity, so on and so forth. Now, the, the, the resolution of, of the information is also very high. So typically, we are looking at uh, double precision floating point numbers. Um, if you conduct a, a real measurement of, of the world, then there's going to be noise and there are going to be acquisition artifacts associated with capturing that data. Uh, finally, I think this is probably the most important point. Uh, you know, as a statistician, as a machine learning researcher, I think one of the most interesting questions that I had been in uh, exploring deep learning was whether these there is no a priori reason to believe that the statistics of the natural world that we capture through our cell phones uh, are going to be similar to statistics uh, of climate simulations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the fundamental question is, are deep learning based systems powerful enough uh, to capture the statistics of clusters in this high dimensional climate space and to be able to separate out or classify uh, the, these uh, these high dimensional spaces? We know now that uh, deep learning based systems are powerful enough and they have the capacity to do this for RGB data, mm-hmm. but can they do this for climate data or other uh, scientific data set? That was really an open question in my mind. And then when you say, can they do this, do you mean um, that you anticipate that the very models themselves might not translate, or do you mean that it, it may not be feasible because of the computational weight uh, of doing this with highly dimensional data? Yeah, so there's certainly a computational challenge associated with the uh, the multivariate nature of the data. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that the dimensionality aspect I'm not too concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, so do deep learning based methods have the capacity to look at you know, again, these 30 or 40 different variables in a million dimensional space. Uh, and then based on the statistics of how these points uh, are laid out in this high dimensional space, uh, can we actually discover clusters? Can we discover separating hyperplanes that might enable us to to uh, to solve classification problems? So those are, I think, the, uh, the interesting questions. Interesting. Yeah, this is fascinating. So so how much uh, you know transfer do you see as as someone who's principally working on deep learning uh, within the scientific community? How applicable is a lot of the commercial research out there? When Google publishes a paper about something they've done in DeepMind, do you sort of look at it out of interest, but go in with the assumption that it may not be relevant to the sorts of scientific techniques that uh, that you're looking to use? So, you know, first of all, I think the, the tools uh, associated with these, uh, the commercial line of research, those are incredibly helpful because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I guess despite the the differences that I was mentioning in terms of the, the number of channels in an image and, and so on, uh, the, the fact is that uh, if you have a spatial image, then convolutional primitives are uh, as relevant to the scientific context as it is to uh, to commercial images. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I would say that the entire tool chain that Google and Baidu and Microsoft uh, research and uh, other entities are producing, they are extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I think we benefit a lot from that in in the scientific world. So, um, so yeah. So I, I guess in terms of the actual research that they do, 
Uh, you know, I think surprisingly, we found that um, the architectures uh, that have been proposed in, in the literature, so um, so these convolutional architectures with pooling, uh, you know, functions in, in between, uh, th- those do work. I mean, I, you do need to customize them. Um, so you cannot, for example, just vanilla take a ImageNet uh, architecture mm-hmm. uh, and then just... Um, apply it to a scientific data set, you will have to tweak it. But the, the fundamental primitives are, are all there and they can be composed for uh, for the problem of your interest. So I, I, I will note that, um, you know, there are some open challenges. There are some unique challenges in applying deep learning for scientific data. And I would say that the broad problem of hyperparameter optimization, mm-hmm. how do you decide what the right deep learning architecture is for your scientific problem of interest? That's an open one. So I, mm-hmm. I think there's certainly a lot of room for uh, statisticians and machine learning researchers uh, to think about what is the most appropriate architecture for a given scientific problem. And then for that given architecture, how do we go about fine-tuning parameters having to do with what sort of functions you choose, uh, what the learning rate should be, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the whole field strikes me as extraordinarily open at the moment, and with, with a lot of progress coming from sort of unexpected places, unexpected avenues, uh, unexpected approaches. Absolutely. I think that's a fair characterization. It's early days, right? So it's, right, uh, right. you know, while the founders of, of this field, um, Jan LeCun, Jeff Hinton, Andrew Ng, Yosho Benjo, they've, they've sort of stuck to their guns for the last 20 or 30 years. But really, it's only in the last uh, five years and that the computer vision community really caught on to this. And it's only in the last year or two that the rest of the commercial world has woken up to to the power of uh, of these methods. Yeah, it's it's extraordinarily exciting. So what challenges are coming up? that really interest you? Where do you think uh, you're going to start to see deep learning applied um, in, in scientific problems that, that's really interesting? I think we do anticipate application of deep learning for pattern recognition, uh, pattern classification, anomaly detection, uh, dimensionality reduction, clustering problems for a range of areas. And those the application areas are as broad as Astronomy, uh, you know, looking at galaxies and stars and uh, distinguishing between them, mm-hmm. uh, cl- clustering them in this high-dimensional space. Uh, we we are thinking of applications in cosmology, looking at mass maps of cosmology and uh, distinguishing cosmological models uh, based on features which are learned from deep learning. I mentioned the uh, pattern recognition application in climate, so I think there's a lot of scope there. So far, we've only looked at simulation output, but there's a lot of opportunity to look at satellite data and process that and maybe do some transfer learning from satellite data back to simulation data. There are applications in neuroscience, so looking at ECOG activity uh, and then decoding what a person might be thinking. And what we are finding is that deep learning methods have a lot of promise there. There are applications in material science and in design of new materials. Uh, A lot of applications in high-energy physics. Uh, looking at detectors like the Large Hadron Collider and then looking for pattern classification, solving pattern classification problems there, but also finding anomalies in such data. So anyway, so those are really you know the, the six or so application areas that I am personally looking at. Mm-hmm. But broadly, I would say that uh, th- there's a lot of opportunity to to examine other scientific domains and, and apply deep learning methods. With regards to your, your question on open challenges, I think that's mm-hmm. one of the Uh, unique perspectives that we have at this point in time after having explored deep learning methods for scientific applications. I would say that there are uh, maybe four 
uh, unique challenges pertaining to application of deep learning for science in contrast to uh, to commercial use cases. The, the first challenge I think I already touched on, which has to do with hyperparameter optimization. So I have a new science problem. Uh, how do you come up with the right architecture for solving that problem? How do we tune that architecture so that you get the best performance? Uh, scientists are not going to become experts on deep learning anytime soon. So it is really key that we can and automate the task of doing hyperparameter optimization for them. I think if we can solve that problem, I think uh, that's going to be of tremendous benefit going forward. Interesting. The second challenge has to do with uh, performance and scaling. So right now we are operating on data sets which are hundreds of gigabytes, approaching terabytes, and our runtimes are definitely on the order of days. Mm -hmm. So making sure that on a single node level, we have great performance, but then also that we scale uh, across hundreds of nodes or potentially thousands of nodes, uh, that's going to be key. So uh, taking the most prominent deep learning frameworks and tuning their performance and scaling them out, I think it's going to be key uh, for, for science going forward. You've outlined a, a handful of really interesting challenges here that range from like, uh, you know, high level sort of uh, application, you know, challenges to very low level fundamental computing and, and math challenges. Absolutely. So, you know, these are challenges that we face in practice. Um, and again, because at NERSC, um, you know, my, my role is to recommend tools to 3,000 scientists. Mm -hmm. I have to anticipate what the problems are and solve them in advance of uh, scientists discovering them, uh, you know, for themselves. So uh, there were two other challenges. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> we're not even to... through them. Yeah, yeah, go Absolutely. ahead. Um, so one, you know, has to do with interpretability. And this is, I think, something which is key to, again, the scientific context. Essentially, at this point in time, deep learning is still a black box. And mm -hmm. uh, not many people understand what's in the black box or how to uh, set the knobs in the black box. And, uh, you know, if I offer the following proposition to a scientist at this point in time saying, uh, you know, throw away your empirical heuristics that you developed over the last two, two decades, Right. And it replaced your empirical heuristics with this black box that's going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is everyone going to buy that? And uh, or, I suspect... or that's going to be perfect 99% of the time and, or yep. 99 with six nines, but, uh, sure. you know, one failure periodically that's completely unexplainable, right? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, again, scientists are, are curious. I mean, they, they really do not like black boxes. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, so I think it's very important that as a community, we be able to explain to domain scientists what exactly these methods are doing and what features they are learning and why they are behaving in the way they do. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that that answer is maybe not as critical for the commercial context. Uh, all you care about is, you know, getting from 99 to maybe 99.9 .9 or, you know, 6.9 mm -hmm. performance. But in the scientific context, I think we do have to explain uh, how these, these methods work. The final challenge is around, again, a unique problem in science in that we just do not have a lot of labeled data. We're not going to have an ImageNet-like context where there are maybe order million labeled images. So uh, that, that's a fact. At best, we might have 1,000 labeled images or maybe 10,000 labeled images, but mm -hmm. that's about it. So this is precisely why I think going forward, the areas of uh, semi-supervised learning, wherein you're only going to have a, hand, a few images for a given class, or preferably unsupervised learning, wherein uh, you, know, you, you just learn the structure of the data. 
those are going to be really, I think, going forward, extremely important directions to pursue. Now, it's interesting that, uh, you know, notable researchers like Jan Kuhn and others have arrived on the same conclusion that unsupervised learning is, is the, the most exciting avenue for future research. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, I think we, we have the same conclusion, except uh, I think our considerations are more pragmatic. How so? I mean, how, how do you see sort of unsupervised uh, learning playing out in, in the scientific community? Yes, essentially, you know, if say if if we took the example of astronomy, you point a telescope at the sky and you collect data, Mm -hmm. images. What you would ideally like to see happen is that given, say, uh, 100 terabytes of imaging data in an unsupervised manner, the deep learning system or some other system should be able to figure out that fundamentally there are maybe five or six types of objects in the universe. And this is how they cluster. And within each cluster, these are the typical spectra that we observe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that would be the ideal outcome. Now, if, if that system can work, uh, as in, you know, we, we get these five or six prototypical objects or clusters associated with these objects, then, you know, anomaly detection could be brought to play in that now we have a seventh object that we've found for the very first time. And then scientists, you know, instead of reading through hundreds of terabytes of data, can only look at the anomaly and just uh, pay attention to what is it that's, that distinguishes or differentiates the seventh class of objects from you know, the, the rest of uh, clusters that I might have observed. And then it comes back to the interpretability problem that, that you described. Having, having found that seventh class, being able to describe it and describe the sort of the, the reasoning, so to speak, that the algorithm made in order to identify it is, is useful. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, what is the hierarchy of features for uh, these six classes? Um, and then how, how is the seventh class different? So, yeah, I, I actually think that uh, anomaly detection is, uh, uh, is a great area to be working in. Uh, and it's going to be very challenging because learning uh, representative, uh, learning a representation of the world and then what's different about something new. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great open problem. Excellent. Well, this has been fascinating and and especially illuminating, I think, for people uh, who have been working principally on, you know, image recognition or, or commercial applications. So there's some interesting parallels and contrasts here. So, Prabhat, if people want to find you, if listeners want to find you online and see what you're working on, where should they look? You know, if you go to the NERSC website, so www.nersc.gov, um, so we, we try to outline some of our latest results on that website. Uh, you're also welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Prabhat and Nersk and, and you'll find me there. Excellent. My guest today is Prabhat. He leads data and analytics services at Nersk. That's the supercomputing center at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab here in California. Prabhat, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for your time, Joe. You can find a link to Prabhat's O'Reilly article, A Look at Deep Learning for Science, in the show notes that accompany this episode. With the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, I'm John Bruner.